Testrangio are here to talk Rise Up October 8th. So you stick right there and we will see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, he's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. And here's a tweet from the LA Times. Tyler Perry is the first African-American to own a studio outright. No corporation or partners are involved in the venture. Here's a tweet from Gia Peppers. Tyler Perry's studio lot is on the grounds of a Confederate Army base. He opened up 12 sound stages to honor our icons. He then created a weekend to inspire everyone else to go after their own dreams as they literally stood in his. What a time, truly our ancestors' wildest dreams. The wildest of dreams. And here's some footage from Ava DuVernay, uh, who posted stuff on her Instagram before realizing she couldn't, but we got it before <laughs> she took it down. Lucky for us, <laughs> we now have this. It's so great, but there's the White House that is built to scale. It's just 36,000 square feet, not the 50,000 plus that is the actual White House. Um, but as you're seeing, Tyler Perry has built a massive production lot to make movies, TV, whatever you want. It's 330 square acres, I believe, which is so big that you could put Universal, Warner Brothers, all of Damn. those mostly white-owned ones in mm. Los Angeles uh, into hits in Atlanta, which is incredible. And it's on a Confederacy base, which is just levels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, just the sheer size and scope of mm -hmm. like seeing that White House getting to watch um, Ava DuVernay's video as well of like, I guess it was maybe the backlot tour yeah. is just incredible. And then also I caught a video of, uh, I guess, Halle Berry getting her dedication of her own soundstage. And it was just uh. this, such a, a celebratory moment and really just something to marvel at mm -hmm. seeing someone's own dreams realized yeah. in a way that also then creates a path for other mm -hmm. people to um, be able to realize their own dreams yes. um, in terms of filmmaking and telling these kinds of stories. Exactly. And Tyler built this because he said, you know, we as black communities should own our things. And owning your things as an artist as an artist is owning the production process. So he built this for other folks and it's not just for black people. Anyone can work with him there, but it's centering black stories, black histories, and black film um, as kind of the foundation to this place. So it's really, really special. And during his uh, speech at the gala, which Beyonce was at, um, if you've seen the photos of her in that dress, I love when Beyonce goes to something, the, the, <laughs> the, the photos are just everywhere. But he, you know, he, the only person he really called out there was Oprah Winfrey. And he said, you know, Oprah, you inspired me to live a bigger dream because of her Legends Ball, which if you're not familiar, go to YouTube, type in Legends Ball 2005 and get your life. Um, but he attended a space that she had at her house where she had all the best and biggest black uh, creators. I think the Clintons were at that too. I don't know if that's true yet. But Clintons yes, were at the this Clintons one. were also They're always around. Weekend, so. um, but he said that allowed him to dream for this, and now he has it. So he was really inspired by her, which is really, really special. Oprah is the other Yeah, movie. yeah, absolutely. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Who has inspired you to dream bigger? Let us know using the hashtag AMDM. Oprah, always. Oprah. Like, yeah, the, the, every time. Yeah, the blueprint, really. Yeah. All right, here's a tweet from Anthony Bresnikan. Joshua Brown was the neighbor of Botham Jean and the key witness in the case of a police officer who killed him in his own apartment. Just days after her conviction, he mysteriously was murdered, as he feared he would be. What is this? Lawyer Lee Merritt tweeted, Joshua Brown was shot in his mouth and chest. He was exiting his car at his apartment when he was ambushed and shot at close range. His mother asked my office to help find out who murdered her son. She suspects foul play. He had no known enemies. He worked for a living. We need answers. BuzzFeed News reporter Brianna Sachs wrote about Brown's death and she joins us now. Good morning. Morning. Now, Brown uh, was reportedly afraid that he would be a victim of gun violence. What more do we know about his death right now? Yeah, not a lot. And that's what um, 
a lot of people are really upset about the police haven't given much detail. They confirmed finally that he was the victim in this shooting. Um, Police found his body at an apartment complex kind of close by to the same um, complex where he lived across the hall from Botham uh, around 1030 Friday. Uh, they, with a few people witnessed the shooting, told police that they found him on the ground with multiple gunshot wounds and saw a silver four-door car speeding out of the parking lot. And, and then Brown later died at the hospital from his injuries. Mm. So walk us through what he said during his testimony during the Geiger case. Sure. So he was a key witness because he helped um, the prosecution piece together the events of Botham's murder that night, which ultimately led to um, Amber Geiger's, the former Dallas police officer's uh, conviction. So when he he was walking home that night from a football game uh, and then he heard, he said what he said, people being from the first time and like sounding someone like sounding surprised and then he heard two gunshot wound or gunshots and um he when police when he was questioned he said he never heard any commands like put your hands up or anything like that um another interesting thing is he also said that during the living there he had walked on the wrong floor before which is something that amber geiger used in her defense of why she was in the wrong apartment but he also had said that there were things like a vase that made him realize that he was on the wrong floor and then he you know went back to where his apartment was but um in you know on his facebook page too he really the the trial really affected him and he often shared videos and uh, tributes to Botham and um, shared like how, you know, his, his testimony, testimony was also really emotional. Yeah, I, I saw this news break um, on Saturday night and I had to step away from yeah. uh, where I was when I was out um, to kind of take it all in. Um, how is Twitter reacting to this? I mean, the social media is just furious, uh, especially on his, you know, Facebook page. It's just covered with people paying tribute to him. Um, you know, a lot of his contacts on Instagram and, and Facebook are saying, you know, that this is something that they're not surprised, but com- shocked by if, you know, if that makes sense and that they're like calling for, for justice for him. Um, you know, and I, as you, you said, his family had told Merritt that they, he was worried how the trial would publicly affect his life and leave him um, exposed and how he would be viewed as like a snitch or someone who was like working with law enforcement in this. So it's, it's really just awful. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly awful. And what will happen next with his case now that he has passed? Um, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, we reached out to the, the, the prosecutor's office and, and police. And as I said, they're being very tight lipped about um, details and like where the investigation is going. Last night they said they still had no suspects or, or motive. And um, that's why it's just kind of going to be uh, a waiting game. And the attorney Lee Merritt, he said like, you know, they don't know whether his death was tied to the trial yet, but it is just all extremely suspect. Um, on his Facebook page too, the night he died, you know, he went live and he was just hanging out in his apartment, just doing laundry, in sweats, listening to music. So, um, and I, I think like another friend of his said that he talked to him that night and he was just going to like, kind of lay low and d- like was going to stay in and kind of have like a really chill Friday night. So we don't really know what happened. Mm. Well, we will certainly uh, keep a lookout for more details. Brianna, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, 
Mm. And we have some breaking news now regarding President Donald Trump. It's from the New York Times. It says President Trump must turn over eight years of his personal corporate tax returns to Manhattan prosecutors. A federal judge has ruled. And I actually I have this New York Times story up on my phone right now. Uh, and apparently the, the judge rejected uh, President Trump's argument that Quote, sitting presidents are immune from criminal investigations. So, yeah. yeah. And there's also another quote here as we're learning about this, that uh, presidents, their families and businesses are not above the law. Well, there we go. There's your cup of tea, Monday morning. <laughs> All right, well, coming up, we're talking about three Supreme Court cases impacting LGBTQ people with attorney Chase Strangio and actor LeVar Cox. Here's a tweet from Chase Strangio. Tomorrow we fight in the highest court for Amy, for all of us, and we carry with us the spirit and love of all who came before. Living and dead, whose work taught us how to do ours and whose lives taught us all we could dream. Mm. We are now joined by Chase, who is the Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project, as well as Emmy Award-nominated actor and activist Laverne Cox. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you both for being here on such a tough week for our community. A challenging week. Can I just say, can I just say, how blessed I am to um, be sitting here with you, Chase. Um, You are so amazing. You are in this work in a way that is so inspiring and empowering. And it has been awesome um, to take you to the Emmys with me. And it's been awesome doing this this work with you. It really is an honor. Thank you. And I feel the same way. And just to be in this space with so much queerness and yes. you know so much energy like feels good because it is a challenging week but we get through the challenge together yeah, so. yeah. absolutely yes. well let's talk about some of that work um can you tell us a little bit about the cases the arguments that the supreme court is going to be hearing tomorrow and what exactly it'll determine about title seven Yeah, so there are three cases being heard tomorrow by the Supreme Court all together in two hours of argument. And the central question is, does Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, um, which prohibits discrimination because of sex, does it cover us as LGBTQ people? Mm -hmm. And... The lower courts have said that it does for a long time, and actually people don't realize that we have been protected under federal sex discrimination laws as queer people, as trans people for many years. And there is an effort by... by Alliance Defending Freedom, by the Trump administration to take that away. And now that question is before the highest court. And they're advancing two central arguments. The first is just that we should not and are not covered um, as LGBTQ people. And that's a direct attack on us as, as queer and trans people. And then they're also making this argument about how the the prohibition on sex discrimination, which has covered discrimination based on sex stereotypes for many years, at least since 1989, should not be interpreted to do so. And so they're really urging the court to roll back the protections altogether so that it would be easier for employers, for landlords, for creditors, for healthcare providers to discriminate against people, not just for being LGBTQ, but because they weren't the right type of man or the right type of woman. So the stakes are incredibly high for everyone. What I've, been, what I've been reminding people of is a year ago, I think it was October 21st, the New York Times of 2018, the New York Times po- um, wrote an article um, based on a leaked memo from the Department of Health and Human Services mm-hmm. saying that this administration wants to define transgender people out of existence. So they want to change the definition of sex being immutable qualities mm-hmm. assigned at birth based on genitalia and chromosomes. The... That is this, this that is this coming to fruition, this mm-hmm. attempt to basically legislate and litigate transgender mm. people out of existence outside the realm of protections under the law. Mm. To get at the gravity of the day, um, on a visceral level, how does it make you feel to see the court taking up um, the rights and really the dignity, I think, of LGBTQ people? 
it's it's scary that our rights are on the line, right? That they, this would even be a question in the United States of America that like, in that the government would be arguing that it should be legal to fire us for being who we are. But then I think about people like Amy Stevens, people mm-hmm. like um, her other two, um, um, the other two um Plain it seem in the case. Can you remember? Don Sarda, Sarda, and, Sarda and Gerald Bostock. That they're just everyday, ordinary people mm-hmm. who were fired from their jobs for being who they are and said that this is not right. And that it reminds me that it's really everyday people who can make a huge difference mm-hmm. in this country and in the world. And for everyone out there who thinks, oh, I'm just you know, normal and I don't have a big platform, you can make a difference in this world. And so for me, it's a celebration of every normal, everyday person who has the courage to stand up for themselves. And tomorrow there's going to be a rally at the Supreme Court. What time does it start? The 8.30. 8.30. In the morning. Um, the morning. Eastern, um, where people are going to be coming from all over the country and letting the Supreme Court know and letting this nation know that we do not believe it should be legal to fire you simply for being who you are. Mm. So walk us through what will happen, you know, if the courts rule against trans folks, gender nonconforming folks this week or whenever they make their decision. What will it look like for everyday people across this country? Yeah, I mean, I think what, you know, we we can't know exactly how the court's decision will look. And so any number of permutations will have a range of implications. But I think what people should understand is that the stakes are... will reach well beyond employment. So federal civil rights law prohibits discrimination because of sex in the context, not just of employment, but in education, in healthcare, in housing, and in credit. And that has been the way that we've achieved so much of our rights under federal law. So if the court makes a strong pronouncement against us, I think that will do two fundamental things. It will strip away legal protections that we've relied upon, and that is in and of itself scary. Mm. And it won't just impact LGBTQ people. It will transform the American workplace, the American schools, and other, you know, systems of of law and government. So that's a big area to to think about, and it impacts so many people. And then the other thing is, the Supreme Court has a tremendous amount of power. Mm -hmm. So if they make a big, bold statement about how trans people aren't who we say we are, or some other sort of, you know, sort of dehumanizing um, uh, statement about us, that sends a message. That is the very very thing, you know, from the bully pulpit of, of the court that says, these are people who don't deserve protections. And that then emboldens private actors to target us in, in, in our private lives, in our workplaces, and in other ways. And so I think we should think about this as both having a stake in the legal protections, but also in the cultural norms and the public discourse that allows us to live freely and survive. Mm, and, what would, and what would reversing all of that look like? You know, this sounds very dangerous, and it is very dangerous. But, you know, if it does pass, because you, we know the Supreme Court is very conservative right now, what does the work look like changing it backwards? Because it doesn't sound like an executive action. It's about the, it's about the equality. Equality Act. Yeah. It's yeah. about the Equality Act. So, right, so right, what, uh, what our opponents, what ADF is saying, what the administration is saying, is that if the, um, if legislators in 1964 had intended to include gay and lesbian mm-hmm. folks and trans folks, they would have done it, and Congress can still amend mm-hmm. civil rights law to do so, and they've chosen not to. Mm-hmm. They've chosen not to because, I mean, well, the, you know, the House of Representatives yeah. passed the Equality Act earlier mm-hmm. this year, but of course, um, the Senate Mitch McConnell like- <laughs> will not bring it up for a vote. And then uh, the current president probably wouldn't sign it anyway. Mm-hmm. So then I think it we can means- say definitely wouldn't sign it. Yeah. 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 So I think it becomes, so if we do lose at the court, we'll, we'll know definitely by June, perhaps earlier, then that's going to make who we vote for next year that much more important so that we can have a Senate that can hopefully pass the Equality Act and then a president who can sign it into law. Mm. Extremely important. But I I want to emphasize once more that um, 
if this will be the first time the Supreme Court is hearing any case about transgender civil rights, the yeah. first time ever. And so if the Supreme Court says that you can fire someone for being trans from their job, then at the Department of Health and Human Services, where they're also saying that we should be able to discriminate against trans people okay. in healthcare, they're saying that the Obama administration overstepped, right, yeah. when they said that we shouldn't be discriminated against trans people in yeah. healthcare. They want to be able to make that legal. They want insurance companies, hospitals yeah. to be able to deny us care as trans people. And if the Supreme Court says it's okay to discriminate against us in um, employment, then they'll be like, oh, well, we can discriminate against you in healthcare. And then at HUD, they want to ban us from homeless shelters. Mm -hmm. You can discriminate against them because we're not who we say we are. The crux of the um, opponent's argument is that they bend over backwards to misgender Mm -hmm. Amy Stevens not to Mm -hmm. use uh, female pronouns. They're they're really trying to say that we're not who we say we are, Mm -hmm. that we are always and only the gender we Mm -hmm. were assigned at birth. And if they get, the Supreme Court decides that, that has ramifications in all kinds of law Mm, beyond that. mm. It also seems like it would have ramifications for policing anyone who is not of, uh, you know, a convention, conventional or normative uh, masculine or uh, feminine gender presentation or expression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so the the precedent that we've relied on in the cases for many years is this case of Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins. And Ann Hopkins was uh, an accountant and she wasn't promoted to partnership because they thought she wasn't feminine. Uh, you know, they, they told her that she was too masculine. She should go to charm school. She should walk more femininely. She should talk more femininely. And, and the court said, no, that is sex discrimination. And in order to carve LGBTQ people out of the law, they really would have to roll back that precedent. Because what is it to target an LGBTQ person, but to discriminate based on sex stereotypes? The idea that we are not living up to what a man should be or what a woman should be. That is the nature of anti-LGBTQ discrimination. And so I think we are opening the door to the types of sex stereotypes in the workplace that have been used to keep all women out of the workplace, first and Mm -hmm. foremost. I mean, the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, at a minimum, was at least designed to to remedy discrimination against all women. And so that is really at stake here. And I hope that especially cisgender women will see this as something they should stand with their, um, you know, cis heterosexual women should see this as an opportunity to stand with their trans sisters, with their queer sisters, Mm -hmm. because that is what's going on here. Um, but, But coming back to sort of what can we do if we lose. Obviously, we go to Congress. We try to pass the Equality Act. We expand protections at the state level, but we keep mobilizing as a community. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, even if we win, there's going to be a lot of work to do. We're Mm -hmm. still going to need to pass the Equality Act. We're still going to need to fight in the streets to make sure our, our, our our trans sisters, our black trans sisters aren't being murdered. Because the law can say one thing, but it takes power building, it takes redistribution in order to protect people's survival day to day. So this is a part of a movement. It is historic. It builds on the work of so many. But, you know, win or lose, it is just a part. And we have to then continue to fight no matter what happens. Mm, Absolutely. And it's always a reminder to me when I think about Roe v. Wade that Mm -hmm. that was passed 45, 47 years ago, however long ago it was. And they've still been fighting it. And it may be, it could very well be overturned. Mm -hmm. So just because you have rights, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was in 1964, just because you have rights, it does not mean that there's not people out there working Mm. vigorously to take those rights away. Mm. So you're both going to be in D.C. tomorrow. Uh, We mentioned the rally that's happening. Um, What else are activists doing on the ground? What can folks who are watching this segment and feeling really galvanized uh, by this case do to get involved? Yeah, so if you're in D.C., come out tomorrow, 8.30, outside the Supreme Court, uh, Eastern Time, there are multiple actions and rallies. Um, Show your support for the community. I think it's also critically important that you make sure people are aware of this case, not just the fact that it's being argued tomorrow. That's important, but then 
as the court is thinking about the, the outcome, keep mobilizing. Mm -hmm. Say that you don't want to live in a world where the court takes away people's rights in this way. Um, and then pay attention. You know, the, obviously, who we vote for in the Senate for president in 2020 will have a huge impact on how we are able to mobilize after this. Because the uh, appointment of judges is yeah, yeah. I mean, incredibly the important. The federal judiciary. And then the other thing I would say, too, is that you can also make a difference, as Laverne said, by standing up for your rights in your everyday life, but also giving resources where you can, whether that's your emotional support, your money, your uh, your time. You know, pe we, can, we can do so much to intervene, to disrupt systems of discrimination and violence in the, of, of those around us, and that makes a difference in helping people survive and then fight together. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Well, we are incredibly grateful that you were able to yes. join us here today, and also just incredibly grateful for the work that you're doing, so thank yes. you so much. And, Chase, well, and I, I have to say this really quickly, Chase is is such a rock star and I cannot wait for our history books to really celebrate yes. you and all the work that you've been doing oh, for so, 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 so long. That was not scripted. <laughs> for those who know, we Chase is like the icon, the icon. Oh, of course, yeah. Laverne is as well. Oh, yeah. Laverne is the icon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we need to give you your props though. We need to give you your flowers while you're yes. still yes. here. Yes, yes. while you're still yes. here, very Absolutely. important. Thank you all. <laughs> More AM to DM is up next. Welcome back. Um, I had a moment while we were doing that interview <laughs> yeah. where I was like, "This, like, we are talking to people who are making history, who are also mm -hmm. working on our own behalf mm -hmm. as queer people, yes. and something that is so major and so impactful." I, I, I like just had to remind myself to stay focused for a second yes. because it, it really, like, the the gravity of this moment. It's just kind of hit me. Yeah, it's massive. Yeah. And also, like that couch was gay as hell. <laughs> <laughs> it was so gay. And those people, like we have worked with them, whether they've been on shows that we've been working on, or I remember Laverne and I. I, I won't even get to that, but they they have been doing the work for so yeah, so for, long, for so long, and people yeah. were not noticing, and they were fighting hard then, and they're fighting now as people the world is watching. So we are there for them, and so excited for them, and excited to see how these things turn out for all yeah. of us. Yeah, so, absolutely. Here we go. All right, let's get into these tweets. Sorry, you tweeted. My talents include waking up before my alarm and then thinking I have enough time to scroll through Twitter for an hour before getting out of bed and then realizing I didn't have enough time to scroll through Twitter for an hour and then panicking and rushing to get out of bed every morning. <laughs> this is us every morning coming to work. <laughs> I actually like, really try not to scroll through my phone in bed. I feel like it's not a good, it's just. Really? Yeah, I feel like you should separate your technological devices oh. from laying in bed. Big scroller. <laughs> big, big, big scroll. Always energy. on there. Yes, big scroll energy. <laughs> All right, Erica, you treat it. Men watch professional sports and be like, yeah, that honestly could have been me if I hadn't taken a Razor scooter to the ankle in fourth grade. Listen, who isn't looking back on the great Razor scooter incident of 1996? That made me not an NFL that made star. Us, yes, exactly. God, that one scooter. <laughs> that one time. Dina, you tweeted, my mom likes you is such an elite compliment. I, I love elite compliments. Yeah, well. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> Tweet me if you'd like to know about that joke. But I feel like that is get, getting someone's mom's approval, big accolade. Huge thing. Yeah. Huge. When my mom says she likes someone, I'm like, okay, maybe we can get married now. <laughs> sure. All right, Dragonfly, you tweeted. Ever had a coworker who had one funny, funny joke once long ago, and you can't, you can tell they're still chasing that thrill, but it never happens again for them. Shit is sad. I feel personally attacked <laughs> by this tweet, to be honest with you. I, I, think, do. I think people are, you're either the joke teller or you're the person that like, is watching them be sad all the time because they can't make it. I don't know who you All right. I don't know who I am, but let's take it to the timeline. Are you a coworker who fakes a laugh or do you kill your coworker's vibe? Tweet us using the hashtag aim to DM with your awkward work experiences. <laughs> <laughs> 
Guess which coworker I am. <laughs> All right, ready for the two of the day? All right. This comes from Big Tucson Dad. Fuck your sign. What's your HGTV decor style? <laughs> what is yours? I don't know them. I'm a I'm a big mid-century modern gal, but I don't know if that's a decor style. I, I think so. I'm definitely a Hollywood Regency fan. Re- Give me like some patterns, some, some like gold accents. That's me. Don't you have like a glass, like a your your coffee table, something? It's like a marble coffee table. Yeah, it's opulent. It's, it's, it's opulent. opulent. It's opulent. Alex is opulent. That's my that's, that's my ridiculous. HGTV. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming up, I'm sitting down with actors Jess Mueller and Megan Hilty from the new Lifetime movie Patsy and Loretta. But more Aim to DM is up next. Here's a soul-hitting mantra from writer Cleo Wade. Just a friendly reminder, letting that shit go is always an available option. Cleo joins me now to talk about her new book, Where to Begin, a small book about your power to create big change in our crazy world, and how she's hoping to do just that one word at a time. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So um, this book uh, comes after your uh, New York Times bestseller. Um, it was called Heart Talk. Mm-hmm. And how, how does this one build on the themes of that book? Well, this book is, you know, I always say that I don't really write books. I really try to create friends. And so this book is that same uh, friend. They're just having a different conversation with you. So this conversation is more about acknowledging how intense and crazy and overwhelming our world feels, Mm -hmm. comforting you through it, and then encouraging you to get back into it after taking a moment to rest and replenish. Mm. So this book starts off with a 91-page poem. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crazy for me because everyone's used to seeing me write in short form. And so even when I read it, I was like, that's kind of wild. Yeah, I mean, how does that come about? Did you sit down with the intention of writing something that was that long? Well, this, um, about, about three years ago, I wrote a poem that then became my TED Talk. And I uh, edited it for this book. And the reason I wanted that poem to start this book is because when I wrote it, um, it was right at the time where we really started having that narrative in our culture that uh, we were more divided than ever before. And it was, it was right before the election. And I found myself over the past you know, two and a half, three years, I've been going back to it whenever I felt like I just wanted to turn away from the world and hide. Um, and when I needed to get back up the next day and not live under the blankets and and be a part of creating the change I know we all deserve, mm-hmm. I would look at that and, and it would be my mantra and that would be the words I would keep with me as I, as I kind of got up each day. And mm-hmm. so I was like, I need to put this in a place where I can share it with people because I don't want to just sit on this tool I'm using. I, I want my friends and the people who read my work to have it also. Mm. Um, it seems like we're also in a moment where self-care and self-love as themes have become so commodified. Oh, yeah. How do you think about taking those to a deeper level? I think that if, I, I think it's been really hard because anytime something becomes a trend, it starts to mean a lot of different things mm-hmm. to a lot of different people. I think, first of all, uh, self-care and self-love have gotten completely hijacked by becoming really expensive things. And I think that everyone should have a self-care toolkit that is almost free, um, or at least half of the things in it can be free. And, you know, I think that the difference between, I always say that the difference between self-love is that 
You know, um, if self-love says, I love you, then self-care says, prove it. Mm. And they think that mm. self-care is how we prove how much we love ourselves. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, the last election. Of course, we're looking forward to the 2020 election. Yes, we're in we are. another moment where um, the news cycle can be really overwhelming. How are you hoping people use this book uh, to navigate what's happening now? I really created this book as a resting place and a place to find comfort through it all. I, I think it's really, I can speak for myself, that living in the 24-hour news cycle is really hard. And I think a lot of the times we are ready or we know it's time to turn off uh, the news for a second and take a break, but then we may open our phones and then that uh, commentary or, or news is still flowing at us. And so I do think that, you know, it's not about just how stressful the world is around us, but how are we uh, taking space from the stress to be able to deal with it? And that's why I wanted to create this book as kind of a soft landing place for you to sit when you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulder or you're just so overwhelmed by what to do that you mm. feel like maybe you should just do nothing. And as we know from even you know the conversation you just had, doing nothing is not an option. Mm -hmm. well, and it seems like this message has really resonate, um, especially on Instagram, where um, for folks who might not know, um, you started writing these small poems and now you have a massive, massive following there. Um, it seems like people almost see you as a friend sometimes um, on that platform. Um, is it ever overwhelming to kind of navigate that sense of closeness that people have with you uh, through your work? Not really. I think that I feel so, so lucky that I get to be a friend to all these people. And I think, you know, for me, part of why I wrote this book at this moment, I mean, if you would have told me this time last year that I would have written another book to come out this year, I would have been like, hell no. <laughs> I was tired and I was kind of, you know, I, I mean, Heart Talk really just came out about a little over a year ago. Um, but after I toured Heart Talk for the whole of last year, I did big city tours. I did smaller town tours. I, I honestly think I went to at least 40 out of 50 of our states. And I, um, as I was having conversations with different people, I just kept hearing them ask me questions that were like, like every single one of them ended with, um, especially during these times. So they'd say, what's your self-care like, especially during these times? How are you staying sane, especially during these times? And I realized that I had to create some work for these times um, because these times are so important. And I am, you know, I was afraid that we'd feel overwhelmed or feel that, you know, we live in this kind of, you're either glorious Steinem or bust mm. <laughs> kind of space where, you know, your activism or the way that you participate in the world can look a different way every single day. And sometimes it's as much as smiling at a neighbor or making sure you recycle. And sometimes it's as much as being at that march mm. in front of the Supreme Court tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Well, in speaking about uh, these moments of being face-to-face -face with people, you also created these Are You Okay booths. Yes. Where did those come from? Why was that so important to you? Well, I would, I have to admit they are deeply inspired by Lucy from the Peanuts, <laughs> <laughs> except I don't charge. Um, <laughs> and that was something I started doing th about three years ago. And I've done them a few places in the country. I've done them in New York and LA. And I basically just sit in a booth from about 10 a.m., till 8 p.m. when they get when they kick me out. I've gotten kicked out of a couple of parks. <laughs> and um, I just listen. And it's so nice. I, I find it to be such a beautiful way to 
hear and listen to what people are going through and also build community. When we did one in Los Angeles uh, a couple months ago, we put blankets all around the park so everyone could sit together. And, and I found that a lot of the events I have, whether it's my tour uh, or if I do the Are You Okay booth, people come and they want to make friends. They want to meet new mm. people. And, and one of the things I kept hearing really often was that people were feeling really lonely or alone. And so it became more and more important that I facilitate these spaces for people to be able to be together mm. and meet. Now you're expecting your first child. I am. Thank you. You said that having a child is the ultimate act of optimism. Yeah. Yeah. How has your pregnancy impacted the message you want to convey to the world? I, you know, it's, I do think that it's important to, as a standard, go through the world looking at every child as your child, because only there will we create fair and equitable and just solutions Mm. for our children. And they all deserve that. I think one of the key things that has I've been really informed by my own pregnancy is uh, that you know you are bringing a being into the world that has not said hi I'd like to be here, <laughs> and so you have a duty to make sure that when they do get here you're doing the work to make sure this world is a place that they can be in and, mm. and live in and and that the home you bring them into is one that is loving so that they can go out into the world and be a lover. Um, and so I think that uh, that, I feel like, has, has informed my work probably the most. Mm. Well, uh, it's been so good getting to talk to you, Cleo. Thank you Thank so much for joining you. me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, Where to Begin hits bookstores tomorrow. Up next, Zach, Zach sits down with Jesse Mueller and Megan Hilty. Here with me are two Broadway sensations, Megan Hilty and Jesse Mueller, who star as Patsy Cline and Loretta Lynn in the upcoming Lifetime film, Patsy and Loretta. Good morning. Good morning. It's so nice to talk to you both because those these women are legends and I'm from Tennessee. So oh, you are? Oh, yes. this is amazing. Okay. Yes, okay. I have not told them that, well, they know I'm from Tennessee in the oh, back, but I'm that. Okay, very well. excited to chat with Yay. you. But before we get into it, I think we have a clip that we want to take a look oh, at okay. of the Let's film. Well, hell's bells, Loretta Lynn. Get your ass out of here. I don't think I can. Of course you can. What in the world? (sighs) This ain't me. I'm just a girl from Butcher Holler, and people only like me because I'm one of them. I go out there looking like a glamour puss. They're going to hate me. Well, who sold you that shit? That was so good. Can we say that on BuzzFeed? Yes, you can say that. You can say shit on BuzzFeed. Isn't that right? Well, shit. Freedom. Shit. (laughs) Well, shit. How did it feel to find out you were going to be playing these influential people? I mean, amazing, but also terrifying, right? I mean, these these are two iconic women, Mm -hmm. you know, that are real. So so there's an immense uh, sense of responsibility in terms of, like, uh, I don't know, paying homage to to their legacy and mm-hmm. and and just you want to get it right for them. Yeah, you want to honor them. And, yeah, but then that's half the fun of it too, because they are real people. You just have this depth of research that you can mm-hmm. go and find, and all these questions that you get to like find the answers to. So mm-hmm. it's well, walk, it's thrilling. Walk me through the research. What did you do? Did you get like all the albums and listen to them nonstop? Sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I that's, mean, that's kind of where I started. Yeah, too. and I read as much as I could, and there were there are several um, biographies written about Patsy, and um and I found. Uh, 
I liked some more than others, okay. just as in terms of their approach. Um, and it was really helpful uh, that Patsy's daughter, Julie Fudge, is a producer on the show. Mm -hmm. And she supplied me with letters, like handwritten letters. Because Patsy, we don't, unfor we unfortunately don't have a lot of, uh, of videotape of her just talking, mm -hmm. you know, in right, interviews in her normal, in not, her not normal. in a public arena. Yeah, so so there was there was a lot of like guesswork as to how she would speak um, just casually with mm -hmm. her friends and her family. Um, and but these letters really helped, like mm -hmm. seeing in her own hand, you know, how she spoke to people through her letters was extremely extremely helpful. That's so mm. cool. Yeah. Mm. And did you find letters for Loretta? Is she a big I writer? didn't. I don't think I've seen letters from Loretta. Uh, one of the things I love that was, uh, she released a book not not too long ago that was also a compilation of, there were stories and things, but also a compilation of so many of her gathered lyrics. Mm -hmm. And the book is, it's beautiful. It's a coffee table book. I'm trying, I think that one's called Honky Tonk Girl. And um, these beautiful photos of, lyric sheets of hers. So again, yeah, because there's something so personal about seeing the actual handwriting. Mm -hmm. And she would grab anything she could to write lyrics on, the top wow. of a box or a grocery list or the back of, you know, something. So mm -hmm. um, that was very cool to see. And she also wrote an amazing book, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, which the film mm -hmm. in the 70s was based on. Um, uh, and again, that was just so helpful because it's it's like you said, it's her own, it's her own story, but it's also in her own voice. Right. She very much wrote it the way she speaks, and I just found that so helpful. Mm. And what's very, help, not helpful, but special about this this project is that these two women were great friends, and it seems like you two have become great friends during yeah. this process. She's stuck yeah. with me now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Was this the first time you've crossed paths? <laughs> not crossed paths. Oh, James, oh my God. <laughs> um, no, but. but we've met each other several times. because We've we never have, worked together. No. No, yeah, so, but we have two very close mutual friends okay. mm -hmm. that prepped us and told us both, I think, separately that, oh, this is going to work. Trust right, me. you're going to be Yeah, fine. you're going to yeah, be yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. What was it like? Okay, so you knew that you're going to be excited to work together, but you both are like Broadway legends. People love you out there. You better there. stop. You know, I'm just giving you all the compliments. What was it like transitioning to a country project um, that isn't, I mean, it is musical-ish, but it's not a Broadway show. So what was it like to transition into this? Sure, it's different, but I... Yeah, I don't. I was thinking about it the other day. I think there's more similar similarities than people think, especially yeah. if you look back at like the golden age of Broadway and Rogers, like Rogers and writers like Rogers mm -hmm. and Hammerstein or Lerner and Lowe. The structure, the lyric. I mean, country music at its best are great stories. Mm -hmm. I think, and and that's that's what great theater is too is great stories. So I think lyrically, there's a lot more um, ties than people would think. Mm. I mean, stylistically. It's different, but I, I love that. We were just talking about this with something else. I, I think that's half of the fun, it, the challenge of getting to sing different kinds of music and really and really dive into the, the styles of different things. It keeps things interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what she said. Echo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's real, real smart. <laughs> she yeah. can now speak for you. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that I echo that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I want to ask you about Beautiful. You know, it's mm -hmm, closing sure. at the end of this month. I know. And, you know, won a lot of awards. It had been a big show. What are you hoping people take away from that film, or how do you hope it lives on? Uh, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I. I mean, I think the music has always spoken for itself. Mm -hmm. I, I think what people loved and were surprised by in the show was, at at you know now 
nowadays, I think we know more about our favorite artists. Mm -hmm. We know more about their personal lives. We know Carol King was a very private person, and I think it was very eye-opening for people to see her story mm -hmm. and to see the story behind her music. It really, the show really was an inside look, I think, into that. And um, and Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and Jerry Goff and her husband at the time, her writing partner. So, um, and, and I think it's, honestly, I think it's exposed a whole other generation to her music too, which is just, awesome because mm -hmm. that should happen everybody should know the music of carol king so for sure i i yeah i hope that that's the legacy of the show and and i think it just it, it's just i don't know i just think it's a very compelling story and a very real story of of a of an artist and how she became the artist that we know mm -hmm. her to be and and kind of how she grew up how she became a woman it's also mm -hmm. the story of a girl becoming you know coming into her womanhood so um yeah Okay, all right. Well, Megan, I have to ask you. Mm -hmm. Smash. Sure. You know, huge show. Have you seen it? Yes. I mean, oh, fantastic. <laughs> it was a smash. Um, so, Great. So, Megan, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a gay man in America. What? You know, gay people love that show. They were and they into want it. to know is it coming back? <laughs> you know, I have to, first of all, I need to tell you, we went off the air, what, five or six years ago? Like, five yes. or six years ago, we went off the air. I am not lying when every when I say that every single day since then I've been asked by strangers <laughs> on the street. I am approached every day asking what the future of the show is, and I I just think it's so remarkable that that like people are still so invested mm -hmm. in these stories and and the musical performances that they that they want it to live on in some way. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm totally blown away by that, and um and I have heard rumblings, and I have had some phone calls. There is Aha. hope for a future There's of hope. it in some capacity. Oh my God, gay Twitter. So maybe so, if you get uh, the buzz going. I, yeah, gay I Gay Twitter, do yeah. your thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying, yeah, really I'm in, in some capacity. Okay. I'm not, I, it, it's, okay. yeah. So yeah. There, we, we haven't given up on it completely. Okay, yeah. that is some tea, wow. Yeah. I like that, I like that. Monday morning. <laughs> oh my gosh, well, we're, before I let you go, Megan, I have to ask you about an Instagram. I'm laughing about Smash, not about what I'm best about. Uh -oh. Because <laughs> I'm just thinking about Twitter right now, uh -huh. and people like really meme the hell out of Smash. Oh That's yeah, like, uh, oh absolutely, yeah. Okay, so Megan, you posted on Instagram that you had no idea you'd get a, quote, new, remarkably kind, funny, talented friend out of this project. And can, and can you tell us, is there another this you. This you. She doesn't have an oh. Instagram account, so I don't think she's seen it. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, she has to tell me. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's never told me in person that she likes like, my friend, I'm, so yeah. this is good for me. So this now is, I know. Yeah, no, well, you can yeah. call me. I'll let you know. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a, I'll take a screenshot of it. And send it to you. So yeah. you guys love each other a lot. Are you going to collaborate more after this? <gasps> well, yeah. Can we say about the? Has it been announced? I don't know. The answer is yes. Yes. Um, yes. 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 Yeah. And if we get permission, we'll let you know or something, and then you can. Can we get a hint? There's there more. There's more singing, singing involved. Yeah. That's that's not a hint. <laughs> I mean, there's more singing and jazz hands. Chat. Oh, Maybe. definitely. Now, now we've promised the people can that I there's guess? jazz hands. Can I so. guess before we wrap? Sure, you can guess. Are you going to be in Chicago? Oh my God! Could you imagine? No, I could say oh, in the show. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah, we're not going to be in <laughs> no, Chicago. Not bad. No, no, no. 
Okay. It's really right. sweet. You think okay. I can dance that well? I think you could learn. I'm very Talent, flattered. Girl. I got you. I can see that. All right, Thanks. we're out of time. This has been fun. I feel I forget I'm at work sometimes. <laughs> it's good, right? That's thank, great. Thank yeah. Thank you so much for being here. It's lovely meeting you, and oh, I can't wait too. to see where this friendship goes Thanks. beyond this project. So me too. It's gonna be. You told a, her about my Instagram. I did. Or I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, you can so you can catch Patsy and Loretta on Lifetime on October 19th. But at next, we're talking about the Me Too movement and the anniversary of Kavanaugh's confirmation. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of Brett Kavanaugh being sworn in as a Supreme Court justice, despite Christine Blasey Ford's testimony and other credible allegations of sexual assault. And this weekend marked the two-year anniversary of the New York Times story documenting Harvey Weinstein's pattern of alleged abuse and assault. In the time since, we've not only been moved and infuriated by these stories, but they have prompted survivors to come forward across profession, geography, class, and more. Amelia Schonbeck, Irene Carmone, and Sarah Jones collected testimonials from 25 people who came forward with sexual assault or misconduct allegations for the story, Was It Worth It?, in New York Magazine. Amelia joins me now to talk about this incredible story. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk to, uh, to you about this one. Um, can you talk me through the process of putting together all of these testimonials? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a really interesting education in just the history of sexual misconduct cases. We went back and researched just dozens of cases from, you know, the this 1970s up to today and just began approaching people and asking them to talk about how they made the decision to come forward and then everything that followed. And it was so interesting because so many people, it felt like once we started talking, the stories just tumbled out. Like they hadn't really been asked this question before. And so the conversations were were just fascinating and generous. And we were so glad to be able to have them. Mm. What did you learn about the toll that coming forward took on these survivors' lives? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, you know, it's really interesting because we think so much about the men who have sort of been felled by accusations of sexual assault. And, you know, we think about Charlie Rose sort of like eating dinner alone. And there has been a lot of long for sort of like space in magazines devoted to what happens to the men. And we never hear about what happens to the women once the spotlight has sort of moved on. So we talked to people about their careers and how their career opportunities had shifted and in a lot of times gone away. We talked about friendships that had maybe fallen apart after this happened. We talked about, you know, legal bills and isolation and retaliation and just a whole range of, of sort of effects that I think are often not part of the discussion. So what do you hear about that question you posed about whether or not it was worth it? It's interesting, everybody almost, well, not everybody. So many, many people said, absolutely, I would do it again. Like acknowledging, you know, the whole range of, of effects that, that they had sort of faced still said, yes, this was important. Um, and yes, I would absolutely do it again. That was not true across the board. And, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of the times what we saw was that people who had sort of gone into the process with a certain type of, you know, political, social power, like based on race and class, really came out of it in a lot of cases in a different place than people who just had less power going into the set of circumstances. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned is that there has been a lot of time devoted to the men who have been accused, uh, a lot of coverage devoted to the men who've been accused and what has happened to them. Um, and we often hear about this idea of a Me Too mob that is ruining lives and destroying careers. Um, but it seems like there is really no credence 
for that idea? Yeah, well, it's interesting too. We're on the verge of um, now, you know, or actually just just past the the sort of anniversary of the Kavanaugh hearings, and Donald Trump really infamously said around then, you know, so many people come forward because they want uh, fame, they want attention, they want money, and that really wasn't true in like thinking and talking about the motivations for people who spoke with many of them lived with abuse or harassment for months or years before deciding to come forward. Many of them only finally made the decision to come forward when they saw another woman being harassed by the same man. Mm. So it was not at all, you know, this type of like mob mentality, like the women are coming, that that sort of really was not borne out in our reporting. Mm. I mentioned that uh, we are on the anniversary now of uh, Kavanaugh as well as Weinstein. Um, how did writing the story and collecting these testimonies um, inform how you're reflecting on these moments now? Yeah, well, I think it's it was so interesting just to think about what, what has shifted in the past two years and what hasn't, and even going way further back, what hasn't shifted. There was so much resonance between what people were saying who had experienced this process of coming forward in the 1970s and the 1990s to what people were saying today. So I think it was a very useful reality check um, that actually there's still a lot more work to do. Mm, uh, a lot more work to do. Um, part of that, it seems, is just the way that we handles the, handle these stories in the media as well. Yep. Um, was there anything that you learned as a reporter uh, in the process of talking to survivors um, just about the kinds of questions that um, the media should ask them or just mm -hmm. even how they're approached? Yeah, absolutely. I think I thought a lot in the process of reporting it just about, you know, about how this could be an experience where women were given back control over how to tell their stories. And obviously, as journalists, we need to sort of dig and investigate in, in our reporting process. But, um, but yeah, just making the interview process something where you listen really closely when people say, actually, that's not something that I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and just, yeah, making the process one that, that felt like they were in the driver's seat more than it often has been was a really important part of this process. Well, thank you so much for joining me to yeah, talk yeah. about your reporting. Thank you so much for having me. Be sure to read Amelia's piece in New York Magazine. We're tweeting it out right now. And up next, we're responding to a few more of your tweets. Welcome back, y'all. I have to just make a quick note about the Kavanaugh segment, which was great. I cannot believe it has been a whole year yeah. since that moment, and so much has happened in this world. Um, and then Tuesday is really ironic that we're talking about this because Kavanaugh will be a huge, potentially a huge impact to that. those cases they're going to hear that you heard about earlier from Laverne and Chase. So it's just kind of surreal. It, yeah, yeah. And, and one of the big things I've been thinking about is how um, the allegations against Kavanaugh are something that really uh, touch on bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, and now these cases with LGBTQ people, I mean, that is something yes. that is really fundamental to our existence. So exactly. it's, you know, full circle. So. You could not even write this. No. Well, following our conversation about Tyler Perry Studios, Christian tweeted, thanks to the Georgia Film Tax Credit Program for making Tyler Perry Studios possible. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, you are correct. Georgia does give great tax credits for you to do shows. That's why Real Housewives of Atlanta will never go away, <laughs> ever. But that's why lots of stuff is filmed in Georgia. Yes, it's yeah. a popular place for film. You uh, know, one of, the, one of the reasons why I enjoy Christian's tweets is because we often can't tell if they are sincerely nice or a little bit shady. So, or know, both. Or both. Both at the same Which time. I love. So you keep doing your Christian. I, I kind of live for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you to our guests, Brianna Sachs, Amelia Schoenbeck, Chase Strangio, Laverne Cox, Cleo Wade, Jesse Mueller, and Megan Hilty. And we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day.